And before you go there, if you're already there, um, put your finger there and go to Matthew chapter 7. Because I want to lead into this study looking at the words of Jesus. You can't go wrong with Jesus speaking first, right? So remember with me, if you will, as you're turning to Matthew 7, that the book of Colossians is really, uh, the main point of it is that Paul is teaching them that they need to be established as Christ. Make Christ preeminent in your lives and in the church. And he starts with the case of Christ is already preeminent. Christ is firstborn over all creation. He is first in rank. He's first in influence, and he should be. Because he was first in influence in creation, he is the creator. He's first in influence as the master over creation. It was created by him, and it was created for him, and and it's actually held together by him. And then um, he says in verse 15 through 18 of the first chapter that he's the creator, but also in verse 19 through 22 of chapter 1, he says that he's Savior and Lord. And so as I've had you turn to Matthew chapter 7, I want to point out that what Paul's getting ready to teach us in the second chapter of Colossians, it's our, he's, he's, he didn't come up with it. He's actually learned it from Jesus himself. And so Paul continues in chapter 2 with the idea of God should be preeminent. He should be first in rank. He should be first in influence. And I say should be, uh, to the chagrin or to the, to the weakness of the church. We should know that. Christ should be preeminent. If he's the one that's the author of our salvation, he's the one that should bring it to completion. But sometimes, I don't know about you guys, when I'm walking somewhere or where I'm doing something or driving somewhere and I've got the time, I start to meander in different directions. I start to get off the main path. I lose focus. I lose um, where I'm supposed to be going. And so as I lose that, or as I forget where I'm going, and I go off on some rabbit trail, I miss the point. And so Jesus is warning his sheep of this thing, and Paul is also going to do that in Colossians 2. So in Matthew chapter 7, verse 13, Jesus teaching the famous Sermon on the Mount, he, can, he finishes his teaching up, and really this is the end of his Sermon on the Mount, and he says in verse 13, he says, Enter by the narrow gate... For wide is the gate, and broad is the way that leads to destruction. And there are many who go in by it. Because, and they go in by it, because it's, in the next verse he says, narrow is the gate, and difficult is the way which leads to life. And there are few who find it. Now, as born-again believers, hopefully we want many to find The fact that Jesus died on the cross for our sins. We want them to find eternal life in the only way that it can be found. But if you imagine it as one of those old game shows that has all of the doors, the options, you know, pick a number, pick the door, and you'll get the prize behind it. Well, that's really what this life is about. Except if we pick the wrong door, it's not just, oh, I only get a fiat, or I only get um, a vacation. I could have won the SUV Escalade, you know, or whatever the thing is. Uh, we look at those prizes and we go, well, they're just varying degrees of blessings. But what God says through Jesus here is that the gate that leads to destruction is broad, and the way that leads to destruction is wide. It's easy. If you've ever driven a vehicle and tried to get through a narrow space, you have to work at it. You've got to watch your mirrors. You've got to make sure you don't scrape up against the curb. It's kind of like driving through if you had a, a pickup truck with a trailer on it. You try to go to Taco Bell in Farmington. Like, they've made it impossible. Like, 
Heaven forbid a working man that's on his way back to the job site has to go through Taco Bell. And guys that work at job sites, they love Taco Bell. I like Taco Bell, right? It's not any good for you, and it's probably not meat at all, but it's so tasty. Meat and cheese and a wrap, man. You can eat like three of them. I might be getting a little excited about Taco Bell right now. But my point is, is that you can't get a big truck through there, right? And salvation is the same way. In order to be saved, we have to take the straight and narrow way. We, it's not a broad way. It's hard. And so he says, because narrow is the gate and difficult is the way which leads to life. And there are few who find it. God is seeking each and every person out. He's drawing him by the Holy Spirit. But many times they find out that God loves them. They respond and they say, Lord, I want you to be the Lord of my life. And then at that point, there's some things that he says that are too hard for them to take. And they go, you know what? This is too hard. I'm out. Now, the question in the debate for centuries has been, were they really saved in the first place? Or or were they saved and they backslid and all those things? But how can you know if you're saved by God? If you continue in being saved by God. Now, that sounds heretical because it sounds like I'm saying that salvation is by works. That's not the case. We're going to find out in Paul's writing today, as you have been saved by Jesus Christ, so continue to walk in Christ. So continue to walk in Him. We have to remain in Christ. It's like walking out into a rainstorm with an umbrella. You're dry until you don't remain under the umbrella anymore. Does that make any sense? If you throw it out, you're like, well, this umbrella was great, but I'm going to leave it over here. And you keep walking and then it starts raining again. You're wet. You missed, the, you, you missed the mark. And so I'm getting off topic and we'll get there. But he says in verse 15 then, he continues and he warns them of false prophets. Jesus says, beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ravenous wolves. They, they, they look, you know, it's kind of like a little red ride, riding hood. You know, she, she was there, she saw her grandma, but she... Your face looks a little different. You got these big long teeth. What's, but you're in grandma's clothes. Like, what's going on? But because she didn't heat that red flag of, wow, that grandma didn't always have fangs and have bad breath and snarl at me. Like, there's some growling going on in your voice. Grandma, you okay? She got eaten. You know, like, <laughs> that's really scary, but it's true to life. Satan is a roaring lion who creeps around trying to seek who he can devour and destroy. And he will not come to you as a devil with horns and a pitchfork and a red suit. He will come to you disguised as an angel of light. He's a deceiver. He's a liar and he's the father of lies. And so Jesus warning them, he says, here's how you know whether or not they're wolves in sheep clothing. Verse 16, you will know them by their fruits. Do men gather grapes from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? Even so... Every good tree bears good fruit, but a bad tree bears bad fruit. What is the fruit of the Spirit of God? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Galatians chapter 5. So if that's the case, and you're looking at these teachers, and you're going, you know, what what they're saying is deceiving, and it, it sounds so good, and I can't tell if they're... Look at the fruit that's produced in their life. Now you say, wait a minute, in the beginning of this chapter... In chapter 7, God says through Jesus, Judge not, lest you be judged. You can't go judging people. No, but in the same chapter, he says, Inspect the fruit in the people's lives that you're allowing to have influence over you. 
And if you will do that, you'll know whether or not they're wolves in sheep's clothing or if, in fact, they are the good shepherd. And so he says, uh, a good tree cannot bear bad fruit and a bad tree cannot bear good fruit. So you'll know them by their fruit. Therefore, their fruits, by their fruits, you will know them. Verse 19 says something important, though. He says, every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and is thrown into the fire. So he's speaking to people that think they know they got it. He says, inspect your own fruit. Because if you really are a tree, but you're producing bad fruit, then the reality is your roots are not in Christ. They're not in God. You're serving your father, the devil, as Jesus would say. Verse 21, he says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father in heaven. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name? Have we not cast out demons in your name and done many wonders in your name? And then I will declare them, and I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. They have this appearance of godliness, but their actions deny the very creator that supposedly saved them. So he warns them. He says, therefore, verse 24, he doesn't leave them with an admonition of don't do these things, but he warns them and he tells them, instructs them, therefore, whoever hears these sayings of mine and does them, I will liken him to a wise man who built his house on the rock. So what is the key to a faithful life? He doesn't say, hear the word of God and go on about your business. He would never say that. But many times we live that way. Jesus shows us something in his word. And if you read his word regularly, he's speaking to you through that very simple act. He speaks to us in our times of prayer. He speaks to us through other believers. He'll even speak to you through somebody that's ungodly. They'll see something in you and they'll call you out on it and it will hit you deep down and it will hurt. But that's the Lord warning you. Hey, to non-believers, you're not a witness. You don't look like Christ to them. Now, if they persecute you for doing the right thing, then Jesus says you're blessed in Matthew 5. But here's what he says. Everyone, verse 26, who hears these sayings of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. The rain descends, the floods come, and the winds blow, and they beat on that house, and it will fall, and great will be its fall. That's what he says. So maybe you're being shaken this week, and maybe this is what the Lord's trying to warn you about. The only reason we can be shaken is if our foundation is not in Christ. And so Paul's warning about the same thing. False teachers will try to lead you back from the narrow way in order to bring you back to the simplicity of salvation. Paul's warning them. He says, I want you to beware. These things that you're learning, these things that you're infusing with your faith in Christ, they're not going to build it up and make it stronger. They're going to weaken it. They're going to make it like when Jesus talked about sewing a piece of unshrunk cloth onto a pair of jeans that have been worn and torn. He says those two pieces of cloth, they won't agree with one another. So when that little new piece starts to shrink, it will rip away from the old piece that's already been stretched and shrinking from being washed. He says, so don't try to mix two things together that ought not to be together. You know, we mix feeling with faith, and, and we can't do that. We, have to mix, we can't mix philosophies of the world with philosophy of God and following Him in obedience to His Word simply because it, it won't work. It'll leave you frustrated is what it'll do. So in chapter 2, we're going to read verse 1 through 10, and then we'll kind of 
dissect it a little bit and, and glean some things. Colossians chapter 2, verse 1. Paul says, For I want you to know what a great conflict I have for you and for those in Laodicea. And for as many as have not seen my face in the flesh, that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love, and attaining to all riches and the full assurance of understanding, to the knowledge of the mystery of God, both of the Father and of Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of the wisdom of wisdom and of knowledge. So these people were being drawn away by false teachers. And these false teachers were many from the East, and so they had these, um, basically these religious practices from, from the East, and these philosophies that said, if you want to really understand what is righteousness and what is good, then you need to contemplate and find your own strength within yourself. You need to find these philosophies of self-help and everything else. You have to get to know yourself better, and then you'll become more righteous. And these Western philosophies, these uh, well, I say Western from where they were. If they, they looked at the, the religion of the Jews, the Jews said, if you want to be righteous in the sight of God, you're going to follow the law. You've got to do all these works. You've got to be circumcised, and we'll talk about that next week. You've got to follow all of these ways to relink with God that are based upon ourselves as the source of our salvation rather than in Christ. And so Paul writes to them. He says, I, I want you to know what a great conflict I have for you and for those who are in Laodicea. That conflict, that word, means, it's the Greek word agone. I'm probably saying it wrong. It's where we get our word to agonize. And to agonize, that word wasn't supposed to be like you're being tortured. The idea of agonizing comes from the word that's a wrestling term. In their day, they would have these people, these contests, like we have MMA fighters except they had grapplers, Greco-Roman wrestlers that would go against one another, and they would battle for the title, for a prize. And so Paul says, I have this great conflict. I have this agony within me I'm wrestling with. And what he says is that there were probably um, extreme physical or mental suffering is what agony means. And it's a prolonged extreme physical or mental suffering. It's to undergo great mental anguish through worrying about something. Now, wait a minute. Paul wrote in Philippians not to worry about anything, but to pray. Be anxious for nothing, he said. But in everything, in prayer and supplications, make your request made known to God with thanksgiving, and the peace of God will guard your heart and your mind until the day of Christ Jesus. So is Paul saying that he is worried about them to the point he can't sleep at night? Is that what he's saying? No, he's actively worrying meaning that he's worrying himself, he's agonizing, he's wrestling, he's contending for them, not by going to them, because he can't, he's in prison, remember? But by praying for them. I don't think that worry is necessarily all bad, and here's why. Worry, many times, is when I realize I'm worrying, and the Spirit of God convicts me that I am in that anxious-about-everything phase, it makes me pray more. Did you ever realize that God gave us feelings? He gave us sensitivities. He didn't give us those and then say, don't, don't pay attention to them. If you're worried, it should drive you to your knees. If you are anxious about something, it should drive you to the throne of grace to pray and say, Lord, I can't do anything about this. 
Remember, worrying can't add a day to your life. I would even argue that it takes days from your life. But when you're worrying, when you're anxious, to go to the throne of grace and say, Lord, I can't do anything about this and it's stressing me out. He can take that, by the way, more than your spouse can, more than your kids can, more than your boss can. Your boss doesn't care. The Lord can take it, though, and he can turn it around. It's an opportunity for him to become supreme, for him to fulfill your need. Your, your spouse wasn't meant to do that. Your siblings weren't meant to do that. Your family wasn't meant to do that. Jesus is the one to fulfill that need and say, I know you can't do it. I'm, finally, I'm glad that you finally came along and realized it. Now I'm going to be the answer to your prayer. I'm going to strengthen you. I'm going to give you wisdom. And you're going to become a sponge as you pray about these things. And so Paul, he says, he says um, I agonize for you. I pray for you. He says, I pray for you as many as have not seen my face in the flesh. Remember, he hasn't ever been to this church. He didn't plan it. He doesn't know these people. He doesn't know exactly what they're going through. He just knows what Epaphras, the pastor of the church, has told him. And Epaphras is at a loss because they've probably all come complaining to him. And he's like, I don't, I don't know what to do. Let me go talk to my spiritual mentor. And so Paul hears what's going on. and He, he points them back to Christ. He goes, wait a minute, Epaphras, I'm not the answer. Jesus is. He says, wait a minute, church, I'm not the answer, and Epaphras isn't the answer. You guys need to get back to Christ. You need to get back to your relationship with him. He says, I agonize over you. I have this conflict. And notice what verse 2 and 3 says. See, Paul heard of what the church was being taught and exposed to by these false teachers, and he was greatly concerned for their well-being as believers, their spiritual life, their health as Uh, spiritual beings was in danger of infection. This false teaching wasn't just something that would draw them astray. It was cancer. It meant death to the body of Christ. And so he says, let's deal with this death. Let's remove the malignant cells. Let's deal with this poison that's involved in you. This isn't just a teaching that'll draw you away slightly. It will kill your faith. And he says in verse 2 and 3, he says, uh, "I, I desire that their hearts may be encouraged that they would be knit together in love, that they would attain to all the riches of the full assurance of understanding, that they would have the knowledge of the mystery of God, of the Father and of Christ, and that they would know the hidden treasures of the wisdom and knowledge of God. But here's the deal. When false teaching comes in and points them away from Jesus, all of these things are threatened. They, the lifeblood, the, the very faith that they trust in, is threatened. False teaching leads to disunity among the church. It does. If there's ever disunity in a church, that's because somebody has a false belief about Christ and following Him and what that means. They have a wrong understanding of God. So Paul points that out. False teaching leads to disunity in the church. False teaching also leads to lack of understanding in the Word of God. It, it brings in presuppositions or ideas that are not of God. And so when we read the Word of God, we go, wait a minute, these two things don't work together. And Believe it or not, we have a tendency with these things that are intrinsically woven into what we've known our whole lives. They're traditions. They're built in. So when the Word of God disagrees with them, do you know what we side with more often than not? Our tradition. The thing that our families always believed. The thing that we, you know, read on Facebook that denies Scripture. Where does our authority come from? Where, Where does what we believe come from? Always be looking for the source of it. Because if it disagrees with Scripture, what you need to be thinking is, wait a minute, what I believe disagrees with Scripture. 
Is Scripture wrong or am I? Is Scripture wrong or are the people that I'm talking to, are they poisoning me with false teaching? And so Paul says that the false teachers are poisoning us. We need to remember that when we hear something that seems to contradict what we know Scripture says. That's why we need to meditate in God's Word daily because we need to be so saturated with it so that when something comes from the outside that disagrees with it, it's like oil and water. It won't mix. We'll just know intrinsically, this is false. I can spit it out. It's bone. It's not meat. So then he, it says, uh, Paul writes to them in verse 2 and 3, that false teaching causes us to lack assurance of our salvation. We start to doubt whether or not Jesus is enough to save us. And then false teaching also blinds us. It clouds our eyes and our ears of believers in the church from receiving from God from the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. God desires to give us knowledge and wisdom richly. He is the source of these things. And anything that would separate us, false teachers will do that. It's like a barrier between us and God. Because we can see them and we can't see God, and so we start to trust in what we can see rather than when what God has told us is true. So, Paul writes to them to warn them. Why do people warn other people? Why does God warn us of things? Many times we receive warnings because we don't know that we need to be warned, that danger is present. Why do we warn our children not to run across the street? Because many times when they're playing, they're not paying attention to whether or not there's a car coming down the street. So we warn them, look both ways every time you cross the street. Why? Because they'll have a tendency not to. Why is Paul warning them about false teachers? Because they're not aware that false teachers might be present in the church. And in every church, there is someone or something that strives. to. If, if Satan can't destroy you, in your outside life, he'll join the church and try to intrinsically mess with things, try to stir up discord, and he'll do it by stirring in lies with truth. And so Paul writes to them, and he says, I have a great conflict for you and for those in Laodicea. Why does he say Laodicea? That's a completely different area, right? No, because geographically, they're really close to one another. And because they're geographically close to one another, they have a lot of the same issues and problems. And so I want to show you what Paul's trying to keep them from, the results of what they're following. If you follow these ideals, if you mix it in with your faith, here's what's going to happen. <laughs> and so in Revelation chapter 3, verse 17, we have John's vision of Jesus himself speaking to the church there in Laodicea, very close residents to the same in Colossae. But what I want to point out is that Paul's writing in around 61 to 63 AD. But in Revelation chapter 3 verse 17, John's written this down around 95 AD, about 30-ish years later. And so I like this because Paul, by the Spirit of God, was already warning this region about what was going to happen. Not what might happen, but what was going to happen. And Jesus in the gospel account in Matthew chapter 7 was warning believers of what was going to happen. That wolves were going to infiltrate into the sheep and start to devour them and teach them false things. And so in John, excuse me, in Revelation chapter 3 verse 7, oh, sorry, 14, Jesus speaks to the church in Laodicea and says these things, Verse 14 says the amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God. 
So Jesus starts out by saying who he is. We like to know who's speaking to us, right? Kind of gives us the authority or the lack of authority of the message. So he calls himself the Amen, the Faithful and True Witness, all capitalized, and the beginning of the creation of God. See the parallel between that and Colossians, where Paul starts his whole letter looking at God's preeminence, looking at Jesus as the creator of all things. And then he tells them a message. He says, verse 15, I know your works. See, they had things that they were actually doing. They were working. They were producing fruit. He says, I know your works, that you are neither cold nor hot. I could wish that you were cold or hot. So then, because you are lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I will vomit you out of my mouth. This is not something I'd like to hear from Jesus, by the way. He says, I see your works. I see what's going on in your church. And many believe he's writing specifically to a real church. This isn't like a theory. He's writing to a church in the future. And he says, I I know your works, that you are neither cold nor hot. I find this interesting because um, Paul is concerned for the Colossians and the Laodiceans. They're in the same region. And in Laodicea, what I need to tell you about their, their culture is that they were a very affluent church. They were much like the Corinthians. There was lots of money. There was lots of influence in the community. Um, they had everything that they needed in their minds. Um, actually, in their, in their community, they had a banking center, so commerce was very well. Um, they had, they, they, it was beautiful. It was decorated with temples, places of worship, and it was decorated with theaters, so they liked entertainment. Does this sound familiar? Lots of places for worship, lots of places for entertainment. Um, they had, in their, in their community, they had a very productive manufacturing facility where they produced black wool garments. So there was plenty of jobs. So everything's good, right? Because if you have jobs, if you have commerce, if you have beauty in your community, then you're set, right? What else do you need? We've arrived. That's kind of what we think, right? We're always striving to be more beautiful and have places to be entertained, and, and then everything will be good and, and plenty of jobs, And then, on top of that, they also had a medical school who had an advancement in medicine. They were cutting edge. They made an eye ointment that was nowhere else in the known world at that time, that if you had problems with your eyes and you put this ointment on you because of some minerals they found in their area and because of the medical advances, this eye ointment made you be able to never have eye problems. And that's great because there were many people in those days that were blind for simple ailments that we now have drops for. So you can see the parallels between their society and ours. But here's what Jesus says to this society, and he's writing, remember this, to a church. He's writing to people that claim to be believers. He says, uh, after telling them, look, you're not cold or hot, so then because you are lukewarm, neither cold or hot, I would... I will vomit you out of my mouth. He says to them, you're not cold, you're not non-believers, and you're not on fire for the Lord. You're just in the middle. And Jesus doesn't say to them, good, get a little warmer. He says, I would rather that you be non-believers than nominal Christians. I would rather you go gung-ho for your faith than be kind of like, well, you know, Jesus on for a little bit, and then I got my own thing. And then he says, everything should be about Jesus. If you are Christians, everything in your life should be centered around Jesus Christ, not Jesus Christ added to your schedule. And I say that as someone who struggles with that. 
I say that as someone who's been confronted by that recently by the Lord. That God, you can have this portion of my time, but if you're going to try to take a little extra, I'm going to be all stressed out and joyless. And what the Lord said was, hey, wait a minute. Are you mine or not? Not are you a little bit mine, but are you mine or are you not? Because if you're mine, what Corinthians says, Paul writing to them, he said, you are no longer your own, but you were bought at a price. And that price was the precious blood of Jesus Christ. So are you mine or not? And so what he says there is he says, verse 17, because you say, I am rich, I've become wealthy and I have need of nothing, and you do not know that you are wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. He tells them, here's what you think about yourselves. You've, you're rich, you're wealthy, and you have need of nothing. You've arrived. You've got everything you need. He says, but here's my assessment of you. He says, you do not know, because you think you are rich, you do not know that you are wretched, you're miserable, you're poor, you're blind, and you're naked. So he says, earthly wealth doesn't equal, equal spiritual wealth. He says, clothed in the garments that are made in your community does not mean that you're clothed with what you really need to be clothed with. You're naked. You're blind. Isn't it interesting? He says they're blind, but they're the makers of the ointment of the region that can make anybody who's blind practically have their eyesight healed. Hey, we don't need God anymore. We're self-sufficient. Self-sufficiency in the eyes of God is abhorrent. It's a negative thing. God doesn't want us to be self-sufficient. He didn't die on the cross so we would be strong in our own will. He died on the cross to show us we needed him, and he wants us to continue to need him daily. And so Jesus says to them, I counsel you to buy from me. He says, I want you to come back to me as your source. He says, buy from me gold refined in the fire. Now, when Jesus said that we need gold, is he saying that we need to get rich? Or is he saying, I want you to buy from me true riches? Riches that will not be corrupted. Riches that will not be taken away from us, like Proverbs says. He says, I want you to buy from me gold refined in the fire that you may be truly rich. White garments that you may be clothed, clothed in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. That's what the Christian is to be, his identity, his righteousness is from Christ. That the shame of your nakedness, he says, may not be revealed. And he says, anoint your eyes with eye salve that you may truly see. He says, I, I, I know you got the eye salve. Number one, I provided that. I gave you the wisdom for it, and I provided the minerals. But he says, I want you to truly anoint your eyes. I want you to have eyes to see the things that matter. He says, as many as I love, he says, I, as I love you enough, verse 19, I rebuke and I chasten, therefore be zealous and repent. He's not saying you're done for. He's saying, Notice your spiritual nakedness. Notice that you're spiritually poor. Notice that you have these problems. He says, and be zealous and repent. That means to turn from your wicked way of not needing God and turn back to him. He says, behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and dine with him and he with me. Think about this. We've all heard this in a salvation message. I guarantee it. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. But is he speaking to unbelievers? It says he's outside of a church, hanging out, saying, hey, let me in. I'm not allowed in your church anymore. You've got everything you need. What about me? Am I not the head? Am I not the buyer of the church? Am I not the savior of the body? What's happened? Where, why am I? He says, to him who hears me knock, I'm standing outside, 
anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and dine with him and he with me. So it's pretty strong stuff. He instructs them to return to him as the source of their true needs. And then he says, you need me for everything. And then in verse 19 through 21, to the church-going people, he says, be zealous and repent. He says, I'm outside, I'm not inside. He says, when and if, if you'll let me in. Isn't that sad that a church would not have Jesus as the center of all that's going on? Let me ask you this morning, is Jesus knocking on your heart and saying, hey, what about me? I'm over here. I'm supposed to be the center of your life, and yet you've got me over here, and I'm not even allowed in. Will you let me back in? Because if you will, I want to dine with you. What does that mean? He wants to eat with us. Well, number one, did you know that when you pray and ask the Lord to bless your meal, that he wants to join you at the table? I kind of get used to it, and I forget that. But Jesus is with us wherever we go, and he's literally sitting at the table with us when we eat with our families. But then, and he is wherever we go, so, you know, that's not only at the dinner table, but that's anywhere you go. Um, But another thing is, is that, uh, I lost my thought. That's okay, I must not have needed to say it. He wants to come in and dine with us. And in their culture, to share a meal meant to become one in spirit with the person you're sharing food with. So picture this. This was Jewish thought, so take it as you want. But basically, if we break two pieces of bread and me and Steve are sitting down having a meal, the same bread made out of the same materials and the same wheat and baked in the same oven, it's, it's all one. It's got the same stuff in it. And he eats a little bit, and I eat a little bit, and it becomes part of both of us. So we have communion. We're sharing with one another. And because that bread is part of us, we are one because we've eaten together. That's why many times they didn't want to eat with sinners and tax collectors, because you were becoming one with them as you shared a meal. It was a very spiritual thing in many ways. And so Jesus wants to sit down and he wants to eat with us. He wants to be the source of the life that pours forth from us. But false teaching and mixing religions and philosophies will actually, instead of joining us together with Christ, they'll leave the Christian estranged from Christ. Think about that. If you're married and you're estranged from your spouse, everyone knows that's not a good thing. There's enmity. There's a war going on. There's disunity. There's dysfunction. What God says is, I want you to be not estranged from me, but I want you to be joined and knit together. That's what Paul was writing. His heart was God's heart. So Paul wants to bring them back to the simplicity in their relationship with Christ before it goes as far as what we read in Revelation. The things we read in Revelation, those things can happen to us if we mix things together with Jesus. We can become rich in our own minds and poor in the eyes of the Lord. I don't know about you guys, but I want to be poor in spirit when I get to the Lord. I want to be full of Him. I want to be producing fruit that He's proud of. I want him to say, come into the joy of your Lord, good and faithful servant. I don't want him to say, depart from me, you worker of iniquity. I never knew you. And so we see the parallels here. So back in Colossians chapter 2, verse 4, he says, Now this I say, lest anyone should deceive you with persuasive words. He says, I'm warning you because someone's going to deceive you with persuasive words. Not false teachers. They come in and they are slick. They tell you things, you're like, wow, that sounds good. It almost sounds too good. And they deceive. They, they kind of do the smoke and mirrors kind of thing. They're not 
obvious false teachers. They use persuasive words, and they try to draw believers away from Christ. So in verse 5, he says, For though I am absent in the flesh, yet I am with you in spirit, rejoicing, I'm full of joy to see your good order and the steadfastness of your faith in Christ. I'm trying to warn you, and I'm trying to tear these things out of your life and rebuke you in some ways so that you can be healed. I want you to see that you are full of cancer if you take in these teachings. So I want to do surgery on you because I care about you, and I want to see you strengthened in the faith. I want to see you continue with the Lord. Paul became one with this church through prayer, and because he prayed for them, he longed to see them do good. Um, some of you coaches in here can relate with this, teachers. If you've ever invested in anybody, whether it's financially or with your time or with your, your thoughts, but with your prayers especially, Paul, like a coach, wants to invest in these players. He longs to see their skills get better and their progress come to maturity. He wants to see them win the game. He's not spending time because he wants to see them fail. He's not telling them they're doing wrong or warning that, the, that their backswing's wrong to make fun of them. He wants them to be better players. Paul wants to see these believers be all that they can be in the army of the Lord. <laughs> you know? And so with his calling as a commander, as a general in the army of the Lord, he's saying, stand up straight. Listen for your commander. Get your weapons in order. Strengthen your faith. Be ready in and out of season. He wants to see these believers be all that they can be, established more firmly in Christ because of these false teachers. Question what you believe because beliefs produce actions. Beliefs produce behaviors. Don't give yourself excuse. If your behavior is wrong, that means your belief is wrong. If your behavior has not been what you know it needs to be, guess what? The Lord wants to correct your belief the source problem, so your behavior will change. So, verse 6 and 7, he says this, As you therefore have received Christ Jesus the Lord, and he commends them, he says, You've received Christ. He says, So walk in him. Be rooted and built up in him. Established in the faith. He says, As you have been taught, abounding in it with thanksgiving. So here we go. He says, Be rooted. Psalm 1 says, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of the scornful, but in his law he meditates day and night. So walk in the truth. Know it. Chew on it. Get to know it. And then he says, be rooted and built up in him. Again, Psalm 1 says, like a tree planted by rivers of living water. He says, it will not grow weary in the season of summer, the dog days when there's no water, because you'll be deeply rooted in Christ. You'll be like a plant, planted deeply in the soil. And then he says, he says, um, be established like a building. Now think about our passage in Matthew 7, where he says, he who hears my words and trusts them will be like the man who built his building, his house on a firm foundation. So if we're to be established on a firm foundation, that firm foundation of Christ as the cornerstone, then we, when we're built, we will be established. And when the rain comes and the floods come, we won't be moved. We won't be moved by tribulation. We won't be moved by circumstances. We won't be moved by people mouthing us. We'll be firm in the faith. And then he says, abound, overflow, be sources yourself of life. Did you know 
that though Jesus is the source of life that we're tapped into, that as we are tied into Christ, we're like a water hose. I was sitting looking at this passage this morning. Think about it. Where do you get the water to water your garden or your backyard or, or whatever? You know, where do you get water from? We, we turn on the tap and there's water coming. Now, that's not a guaranteed water source because there's all things in between there and the, where the water comes from. But my point is, we trust that source of water. If we are trusting in Jesus, if we're tied into him, if we screw our hose up there, not only do we get the water at the source, but as that hose is tightened and it's turned on, that hose really should be like what we are. Taking our source of life, Jesus, letting him pour through us and watering others. We are to be sources of life as we are tied into Christ. And when you're not tied into Christ, you're just a water hose laying in the yard. You're not any good in the hands of the Lord. And so in the same way, we are to be abounding. The word means to overflow, to be sources ourselves. And John chapter 7 says that. Chapter 7, verse 37 and 38 says, He who believes in me, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. We're going to be sources of life to people who don't have life. But we have to get our own things in order first, in order to be used by God. We can't be the hose that's been laying in the garage full of, you know, those little wasp nests in the end. You ever try to turn one of those on, you just get sprayed in the face. And so, verse 8, he continues with one last warning. He says, beware. Made me think of the signs that are on people's yards. Beware of dog. He says, Beware lest anyone cheat you through philosophy and empty deceit, according to the traditions of men, according to the basic principles of the world, they're not according to Christ. Uh, these people, these false teachers, they will cheat you. You'll get cheated. You won't even know it. They'll walk away and they'll have your spiritual wallet. Through philosophy, through deceit, through traditions, through basic elements meaning the elementary principles of the world, but not according to Christ. 1 John chapter 2, since Kelly was in 1 John, I wanted to go there. 1 John chapter 2, verse 15, John writes there, he says, Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. He doesn't say the love of the Father is just a little bit in him. He says, if you love the world, the love of the Father is not in you. It's very clear. For all that is in the world, verse 16, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life is not of the Father, but is of the world, and the world is passing away, and the lust of it, but he who does the will of God abides forever. So, beware of false teachers. They will use the desire to look good, the desire to feel good, and the desire to, to be good. They'll use those things to draw you away from the Lord when those desires really should draw you to the Lord. And so Christ contains all that we really need. Verse 9, Colossians 2. For in Christ dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily, and you are complete in him who is the head of all principality and power. If you want to be whole, if you want to be complete, <laughs> you ever hear that? You complete me. People say that about their spouses. They just, they just complete me. Well, actually, they might actually bring more holes to the game than completion. They might actually make you have more of a need for Christ, even though they will be your co-responder, and they will you know, bring things to the game that you don't have. You still need Christ in order to fill the big gap. 
You still need Christ to be the one who is all and in all, and you will be and are complete when you are in Christ, who is the head of all principality and power. There's nothing that's not under his lordship. And so, in Christ, you're made complete. He's the head. He's the ruler. He's over every other dominion, kingdom, company, boss, principality, government, over every power. All you need is Christ. Sounds obvious, but we are easily drawn away from that fact. So let me ask you this morning, as we get ready to take communion, is Christ who you really trust in, or are you trusting in other things that will not support your faith? Are you trusting in Christ with your family? Are you trusting Christ to take care of your financial needs? Are you trusting Him for wisdom that you need in your daily life? Or are you trusting in some other system, some other work? Because if you are, then you're going to be moved. But if you're trusting in Christ, you cannot be moved. And so as we get ready to take communion, I want to remind you what communion is. It's that fellowship that we have with God. He says, Behold, I stand at the door and I knock. If anyone will hear my knocking and open the door and allow me to come in, I will sit down and I will dine with him. I will become one with him. I will share fellowship with him. Jesus wants fellowship with each one of us. And if we're willing, during this time, uh, we take communion as a remembrance of what Christ has done for us, what he is doing for us, and looking forward to what he will do for us and what he is going to accomplish in building his kingdom here on earth. And so um, if you're a believer in Christ, if you're a follower of Jesus, and um, you are free to take the table. We don't do closed communion here. But if you're not right with the Lord and you need to get right, get right with him and take communion. It's as simple as us responding to his call to repentance and faith. And if you need to deal with him on something, take some time and just pray. Well, we're singing this song and everybody's coming up at their will, at their leisure to come get the, the elements. I want you to take some time and just spend it with the Lord. We picked a little bit longer of a song just so you can do so. Ask him to search your heart. Ask him to test your motives. Ask him, Lord, am I really trusting in you or am I failing because uh, my beliefs aren't really what they should be because I don't know. And, uh, and he will do abundantly above and beyond, I guarantee, what you can ask or think. So, Father, we, uh, we open up this time of communion. We pray for your blessing upon